Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, President Donald Trump's first 100 days in office. We have made incredible progress. I don't think there's ever been a president elected who in this short period of time has done what we've done. We're dedicating a whole hour to the triumphs and tribulations of the 45th president of the United States. Here to give us their take, members of the Mass Politics Profs, New England political science professors who offer analysis and commentary on their blog on WGBH.org. Joining me in the studio, Aaron O'Brien, chairperson and associate professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Hello, Aaron. Hello, hello. And joining me by phone, Shannon Jenkins, chairperson and associate professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts, Dartmouth. Welcome back, Shannon. Hello. And joining me from the studios of New England Public Radio, Gerald Duquette, associate professor of political science at Central Connecticut State University. Hello, Gerald. Gerald. Happy to be here, Callie. Well, I'm glad to have you all. Um, I want to start this way. President Trump leading up to this 100-day marker, which, by the way, is one that came out of uh, FDR's presidency, and it's just become a metric that we use now for every other president. You know, one can argue and one should argue whether or not that's reasonable, but there you have it. But he wanted to be able to say within the 100 days, even though he's mad about being judged by this short period of time, that he has accomplished something. And one of the things that he's touted through Sean Spicer, the press secretary, is that he signed 28 bills so far, which I thought seemed odd to me. But in fact, he has signed 28 bills. Truman signed 55 bills in his first 100 days. So, in fact, he signed the most since Truman. And the next highest was uh, John F. Kennedy, if anybody cares, who, who signed 26. However, as PolitiFact makes clear, their bills in their bills. And so here's <laughs> some examples of the bills that he signed. Take it for what it's worth. Three of the bills appointed individuals to the Smithsonian Institution Board, two <laughs> named buildings, and one designates a location for the National Desert Storm and Desert Shield Memorial. So that wasn't really what he had hoped to pass in his first 100 days when he spoke about legislation. I think it's fair to say that he and we thought it was going to be immigration or health care or any of those large topics that he talked about very much on the campaign trail. But here we are. So I want to talk about his 100-day legacy thus far in some thematic ways. And the first one is flip-flop or flexibility. Some people are calling him a flip-flopper for changing his mind around certain things, Aaron. But he says even before he came into office, he's always been a flexible person that you have to get into the situation and figure out whether it's you need to make some changes. That seems reasonable. What say you? 
He's flexible. Uh, (laughs) You know, the statement gets overused, but I do think it's true. Trump does not have really strong core beliefs beyond self-promotion and remaining popular or, or being popular. And so he is flexible on his policy positions. The guy's a Democrat who put Jeff Sessions in as AG, right? So that flexibility doesn't necessarily mean good policy or that he's being flexible because he's being bipartisan. He's being flexible because he wants to win things. He wants to you sign more bills, bigger bills, much bigger ones than the ones that were enumerated there. So that is a flexibility born not a policy belief, but born of the idea that I want to be able to promote my brand. So, Gerald, just so to remind people, here are some of the things he's been, quote unquote, flexible about. Are we with or against NATO? Where do we stand on the details of the health care bill that was put out on the border wall, sanctuary cities, Vladimir Putin, just just a random (laughs) list. So go from there and and give me your take on flip flop or flexible. Well, he's definitely flexible for the reasons that Aaron just discussed. Here's the thing. He, he's very flexible, but he's also very fond of being very definitive, too. In other words, one of his favorite rhetorical things is to say, well, during the campaign, on day one. So we're sitting here talking about the 100 days, and really, you know, something like half of the 100-day promises were actually day one promises. Mm. So he, he understands that most people don't actually follow through exactly, you know, sort of verbatim on the things that they say. And he has a relationship with the people who are his supporters where they understand that he's really just expressing sort of values or emotional uh, commitments. And what he actually says is not really as important. And I think that's borne out in all the polling now that tells us that his supporters remain quite committed to him, despite the fact that in a literal sense, there's very little substance to what he's done. All right. We're going to do a deeper dive about uh, supporters and polls a little bit later. But for now, Shannon, flip-flop or flexible? I don't know if I'd say either. I think just he's learning. I think Mm -hmm. his earlier positions reflect a real lack of understanding of a lot of these issues. You know, I've lost count of his most recent one with Reuters. Uh, I don't know if it was a few days ago, right? I really thought this job would be easier than what I was doing before. <laughs> That's right? right. Like I, I really legitimately think he didn't understand how difficult all of the things he was promising were going to be. And so that gets to sort of Gerald's point. Like he likes to say stuff because he really thinks those things are true. And then when he learns more about sort of how complicated things are, he has to he realizes then that he has to back off on those. And so I, maybe you could call that a, a flip flop. But I think it's he's starting to realize how technically complicated the things he proposed doing are. So is that a good thing? Because he did say, and it was really literally a couple days ago, he said to the Reuters reporter that he didn't realize how hard the job was going to be. And he went on to say, I'm a hard worker. I don't mind work. But this is harder than my former work. And he seemed he did seem surprised by that, Aaron. <laughs> I think to his supporters, that's going to ring true. But it just goes to show you that one of the critiques made by many, many Democrats, but also many Republicans that are more institutional Republicans, is the fundamental lack of knowledge he came in with. And so, you know, as we do this 100-day discussion, the bar is so low because he knew so little. And the fact that every president comes in and they all report afterwards, I was shocked by everything that was going on. Donald Trump, I'm only being slightly facetious, is surprised that there's a House and a Senate, <laughs> right? You know, that knowledge base is so low that he made these definitive claims and won on them when they were absolutely undeliverable. Now, what's shocking to me is 
is that his supporters don't find that problematic. But I'm with Shannon. I think he's being 100 percent truthful. And I think that's 100 percent frightening. You know, uh, yeah. he, he's actually uh, managed to, uh, in a sense, come up with a form of plausible deniability hmm. uh, <laughs> Explain. that works very well for him. In other words, he has cultivated the notion that he doesn't read or doesn't mm. look into things deeply because he has a gut. He has some sort of magic gut. And he makes great decisions. So when his decisions may seem to have gone awry, he can very sincerely say, gosh, I, you know, I just didn't realize it was going to be so hard. And in so doing, sort of acquit himself of any sort of dishonesty. Shannon, I heard you wanted to get in and add something as well. Yeah, and follow up on what Gerald said. You know, it's also very frustrating, I think, to people who sort of do this professionally. Right. Like who knew it could be so hard? And all of us are sitting here saying, right, journalists and think tanks and right people who work in government. We all knew we could have told you that. Right. The other 15 I mean, guys on the stage. This. Yeah. We did tell right. him. We did tell him. Right. Could tell him. We did tell him. Right. But he, right. But he's, I, I think, though, he's, he's not, you know, the people he surrounded himself with are, are not have no expertise. Right. You know, so they're all sort of winging it as well. And so it's, you know, it's scary. You see. The 30% cut in the State Department, positions are not being filled. These are the people who tell you, oh, don't take a call from Taiwan, which now he's like, oh, I'm not going to do that because I'm friends with, you know, Xi. If he would have listened originally to what people were telling him, he would have known that. And so it's very incredibly frustrating, you know, to Aaron's point, when you hear these things being said, because we all knew this going into it. Well, so that's him, apparently. Right. Yeah, exactly. So that uh, moves me into a, another thematic take on the 100 days of President Trump, and that's the move away from isolationism in some areas, some huge areas. Uh, so we have just you mentioned with President Xi and trying to engage him now with North Korea and saying after 10 minutes of conversation with the president, he realized, oh, I just can't do that. There's a history here dropping bombs in Syria and then the mother of all bombs in Afghanistan after an apparent response to what he saw on TV with regard to Syria, at least, and the chemical attacks. And then later, I don't know why, with the bomb in Afghanistan. I'm not quite clear, but there appears to be some reason for that. But the bottom line is this. His whole point on the campaign trail was America first, America first, America first. And we're going to stay out of these wars, and I'm going to diminish the wars that we're in because that's not our primary focus. So it appears now starting with you, Aaron, he's no longer an isolationist. And that's either by learning curve understanding or by... I don't know what by. I don't know, I don't know how to characterize it. Yeah. You know, I, I think in part he's realizing or the few that are surrounding him are realizing you can't do America first pure isolationism on day one. We are embedded. We have been global. We have been global leaders. Whether you like it or not, you can't just snap your hands and get out of that. And so I think what they're realizing is America first is a global perspective. If North Korea has nuclear weapons, that's not so good for America. But again, it speaks to like he thought he could just say it. America first. We're going to, you know, take care of our own. We're not going to be in every war. Well, that's wonderful rhetoric. And, you know, obviously it was rhetoric that a lot of people responded to. But on NATO, on South Korea, on Afghanistan, on Syria, he's realized that's not in America's best interest. And so yet again, it's hard to govern and it's hard to govern in sound bites. And yet, Gerald, he has moved on trade saying that he's going to look at, well, first he said he was going to get rid of NAFTA, but then he said we're going to look at it again and renegotiate it. And then with the other one that I'm now blanking on, 
thank you. He said, okay, we're done here. And that is exactly what he said he wanted to do on the campaign trail. And that does speak to an America first perspective. So is he sort of balancing out things now or is it just how do you take it? That's a good point. I I listened to uh, Aaron talk about him as if he's actually understanding of what isolationism is. I say, God, it's so hard not to assume that the president of the United States has basic knowledge. It's very hard to to get wrap your head around the fact that this is a guy who probably had isolationism explained to him while he was a president of the United States. On the one hand, that's kind of crazy. But here's the thing. America first is the thing that he meant. What America first means depends. Right. You have to understand America first. That's the sincerity. Right. He really believes that his decisions, which come from his gut, will always put America first. And he's basically telling his supporters and people, you're electing my gut and I'm telling you the result will be America first. The rest are sort of details that will be worked out somewhere else. To the degree that he actually mentioned details on the campaign trail, he was really just responding to the sense of the crowd. He was, you know, he was making, he was riffing, really, and he was talking in ways that would draw the, you know, raise the applause meter. The only thing about that that was consistent, of course, is America first. And to him, as well as to his supporters, the content of that idea is very flexible. Hmm. Shannon. So I want to come back to not just trade, but sort of the broader international policy, you know, because I lived in China for a year. Oh. Um, you know, and watching this and his interactions with the Chinese, I just it, it's so clear to me that he lacks a fundamental understanding of how to interact with other countries. Like, I think he thinks that he can go in and be the I'm going to be tough and that's the way I negotiate. And so it scares me, the gutting of the State Department, because these are the people that whisper in your ear. They whisper names. They whisper how to approach things. And in China, the concept of face is very important. The Chinese, particularly people who are powerful, don't like to look bad, right? They need to have faith. And Trump clearly doesn't understand that. He clearly doesn't understand how he's like a bull in a China shop, right, running through. And that that really scares me because we're not talking about maybe a hotel deal falling through. We're talking about maybe pissing off a dictator who has access to nuclear weapons. So fundamentally, on the domestic side, you know, I may not agree with Trump, but I'm not particularly, I'd say, scared. His foreign policy at times really scares me. I saw a quote the other day where he said, well, talking about, you know, North Korea, well, I hope they're rational. Right. Like, oh, my, Uh right? Like, no, they're not. Fundamentally, right. they're not. This is the problem. Right? Well, what he said it's before that, that? Uh, Shannon, what he said before that, though, is what has got a lot of people quite upset. And that is there probably is going to be a major, major, this is, I'm quoting him, conflict with North Korea. And that, you know, sets off somebody. <laughs> that just scared me right. looking at that. Yeah. yeah right. All right. If I were living in Seoul, I'd be pretty darn scared right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, on the other hand, I think people have caught on that when Trump says something, it's likely not actually going to happen. But that's people but, here. Exactly. I don't think people right. around the world get and that And even yet, the you know? show of inviting the whole Senate in, like, these vans, and then, of course, they, the senators walk out, and most of them were like, what was that? You know, Coker was the best on there. Like, just his face told the story on, yeah. on this. But, you know, he, he invites them. He makes this big show of it. Well, the North Koreans are watching 
doing that. Right. You know, to these points, like we know, or most of us know, like this is this is reality television come to the White right. House. Well, Which now right. he doesn't And and let me just he doesn't say before understand nuance. Right. No. But before you jump in, Gerald, let me just say for people who were you know haven't been paying close attention to this, he took the whole Senate group <laughs> over laugh. to the White House to give them a briefing on North Korea. And when various senators came out of the meeting or uh, congresspersons came out of the meeting, some were like, well, that was very interesting and we should have gone. And others were like, I don't get it. I don't know what's uh, uh, happening. So just so people know. Yeah. So go ahead, Gerald. Well, I was my question was, which senator got the rose? You know, that's what <laughs> <laughs> From the uh, bachelorette, if nobody's yes, keeping up with course. pop culture. Uh, here's the, th- here's <laughs> the thing about... Here's the thing about Donald Trump. Uh, Donald Trump is really kind of an everyman character because the average person, everybody, frankly, in in most of the elements of their lives, bases their opinions about things they have no specific knowledge about on their own life experience. And so we have a person who's the president of the United States who has a very unusual life experience. In his life experience, there really aren't negative consequences for him, no matter what he says. There's Mm. never a decision that will actually cause him to be poor. You know, in other words, this is someone who absolutely works in a methodologically like the average person would work in a situation where they don't understand. They just go by their life experience. And that produces, obviously, prejudices and, and superficiality and all the things that we people who are in the business of trying to understand this stuff think of as horrible. But on the other hand, his supporters love it because if they were president, that's how it would go. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are the mass politics profs, Shannon Jenkins of UMass Dartmouth, Aaron O'Brien of UMass Boston, and Gerald Duquette of Central Connecticut State. You just heard him. We're discussing President Donald Trump's first 100 days in office. So, Uh, Let's bring the negativity up to positivity, at least (laughs) for President Trump. There is one clear victory that he's had during this 100 days that everybody agrees is a victory for him. And uh, Saturday Night Live uh, made a note of it in one of its uh, recent shows. Oh, Pence. Pence is hard to believe I've been president almost 100 days, and I've already done so much. It's hard to keep track of it all. Read to me again from the list of my accomplishments. Of course, sir. Nominated Neil Gorsuch. God, I love that list. (laughs) So that was uh, SNL's take on that really is the singular accomplishment. Now, here's President Trump himself referring to this accomplishment. I've always heard that the most important thing that a president of the United States does is appoint people to the United States Supreme Court. And I can say this is a great honor. And I got it done in the first 100 days. That's even nice. (laughs) Shannon, I'll let you start off. Your response. Oh, I don't even know where to go. Yes, it is. It certainly is an accomplishment for him. But, you know, we knew that this is, I I mean, anyone who watches knew this is the way it was going to go down. The moment the Republicans decided to not hold a hearing or a vote on Merrick Garland. You know, ultimately, it has rewarded the Republican Party for sort of not playing by the rules. And I know people are going to be angry with me and say, oh, you know, we shouldn't hold a hearing on a lame duck. But it's just not the norms of how our government has operated and should operate. So this is a part why we start are starting to see the breakdown of a lot of the norms and the rules of how the Senate has operated in the past. 
because you win if you don't pay attention to those norms. And so why pay attention to them anymore? Gerald? Yeah, absolutely. In the clip you uh, just played, he used very familiar constructions. He likes to begin at any point he says with things like people say or I've always heard. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. thing is, you know, sometimes he's just saying that to so that he can make a claim that nobody has actually said and you can't call him on it. But on the other hand, that's how the average person thinks about what they know. Oh, I heard this, and I, a guy told me that. And, and the thing is, we're dealing with a president who really is basing very serious decisions or very serious conclusions on what people tell him and what he heard, not on any sense of studying it or knowing it, but literally there's no difference that, hey, I heard that guy was a jerk or, hey, I heard that when you're negotiating over a nuclear deal, you should never eat chocolate cake or, I mean, there's no rhyme or reason. He really is just getting information about the most incredibly important and delicate and complicated issues in the exact same manner that he's getting information of no particular value. That may be uh, Aaron, but he gets one in the column of win with yep. uh, Neil Gorsuch. Most definitely. And I think he gets that one. And he also gets by going nuclear, the nuclear option, mm-hmm. uh, meaning, of course, that it didn't require 60 votes or, uh, to, to become not a chief to justice. Devote on, to, to vote on, on it, right, uh, Neil exactly. Gorsuch. Uh-huh. So then he gets Gorsuch and he gets that. So it makes his next, and it, by many estimations, most court watchers think there's, he's going to have at least one more mm-hmm. justice that he gets to put on the court, and he softened the ground. It's now easier for a true ideologue to come along, and that would change the shape of the court. So that was a victory for him, and um, the structural change that happened in the Senate, he didn't cause, but he's going to benefit wildly from. So I'd put two in his column. My other point on that, though, while those are, this is a real victory, I think Democrats have been really, I mean, you play the Saturday Night Live clip, and I certainly smiled and chuckled, I'm not lying, but I think Democrats, elite media, and others don't poke the bear mm. <laughs> on some level. Uh, uh, when Donald Trump pulled health care, he did pull it decisively. Mm. So, we're, all right, we're done. We're not fighting that. That all the reports came out that that's that it was Trump's call ultimately. It's only when he gets mocked afterwards. I mean, the man has the thinnest skin I've ever seen in an elected leader, but it's fact. When there are protesters out there, he actually, it really bothers him. We see it in immediacy with his tweets and, you know, Saturday morning, all that craziness. So I think Democrats and others who are afraid of the Trump agenda, and I include myself amongst that crowd, needs to be really careful about getting smug or being so publicly mocking the guy. And that's a psychological game. We have a free media. Of course, you can do whatever you want. But from a a strategic point of view, I honestly believe the reason he's like digging back in on health care is because he got made fun of for not being able to get it through the first time. So while um, this was a huge victory with the court, that there is like, shh. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yes, Shannon and uh, Gerald, I heard both of you. Mm -hmm. Well, I was gonna I was gonna follow up on Aaron Ray. He he can't let it go. He can't yeah. let losses go, right? And in, in the Reuters interview, I read that he pulled out maps of the 2016 election yes, to show I saw his that. victory. Yeah, right? That's, funny. It, That's it true. Was yeah. November. Yeah. You won. The, move right. on. The, yeah. There's another you element can't of this. Move on from that. There's another element of this that we have to look and think about. His, what is his definition of a win? His definition of a win is so superficial. You know, when we talk about a, a political win as uh, political scientists, we are, you know, sometimes we're talking about it in a superficial way when we're just sort of relating it to how will the polls react. But that's the only way 
he thinks about it. It's literally a win is just I got better ratings or in other words, victory has no substance to him. That's why he can continue to go back. That's why he can say crazy things. That's why he can have alternative facts. His definition of victory is I want it's it's sort of the Internet trolls definition of victory. Hmm. It's not real victory. It's I got you and I put you down and I'm the winner. I'm the declared winner. And if anybody comes along and says you weren't the declared winner, he's got to say, no, no, I am. I am. And that's that's he really is an Internet troll. So following that, then, he's really very angry with the other courts, not not Neil Gorsuch, <laughs> yes. but with the federal courts for having blocked a number of his initiatives. The travel ban, as we know, got sent back twice or I don't know where it is now. It's in limbo. They're, re- they're redoing it. And then most recently, sanctuary cities got rejected. He had threatened to pull funding from so-called sanctuary cities, and the federal judge said no. And he's now on an overt, I don't like the... Ninth Circuit Court, those justices are just biased and political. And and I think a lot of people didn't even know who the Ninth Circuit Court people were. But now, you know, they've been given elevated status because he's so very unhappy about how he's been treated by the courts. Let me just play this comment from Stephen Miller, which this guy is a Bannon uh, acolyte and very high up in the Trump administration. He's young. But I think that what he said right after the travel ban was initially rejected by a federal judge really is the essence of how the Trump administration feels about the judiciary. This is a judicial usurpation of power. The end result of this, though, is that our opponents, the media, and the whole world will soon see, as we begin to take further actions, that the powers of the president to protect our country are very substantial and will not be questioned. Now, a lot of people, Gerald, across the board, ideologically, uh, conservatives and uh, liberal folks, just to be clear, were very unhappy with with that statement because they felt that it showed a lack of uh, respect or it showed disrespect, actually, for the, the three branches and the impact. And also it had a... A heavy tinge of authoritarianism, like we we tell you and you do it, and that's the end of it. Um, how did you read that, and how do you see that any of this is going to change in the next 100 days, or for that matter, the first term? Well, the, I, I read that as a, as really a good statement from Trump based on his theory of how he should wield power. In other words, there's a lot of good research from a UMass graduate student about the fact that the average Trump voter scores very high on what we call an authoritarian personality index. This is something that actually cr- draws the biggest cheers from his base, the idea that you gave him the job, he's, it's his job to do. Now, the comment is also true. And it's important for us to note that. In other words, it is absolutely true that the president does have a great deal of power to protect our national security. So, you know, we can sit here offended as political scientists and talk about checks and balances and all that. But the point of the comment was really just that it was one of the better comments from the Trump administration, because in addition to just going obnoxiously after their base, it happens also to be true. But the part about and will not be questioned, yeah. that seemed to be a little. Well, good point. Good point. That was just for the base, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. But it was also it was also it was for the base on the one hand and it was for us on the other, because now we play our part by saying that that's bad. And that's what he wants us to say. Right. He wants us to say you can't do that, blah, blah, blah. So his base could say, oh, yeah, he can do it and he'll show you. 
So in other words, even that is something that helps him rhetorically, right? He, he threw that in the end so that the liberal media would say bad things about him, and then he could then play that off. Though I will say, Shannon, that members of his own party said, whoa, wait a minute, that's way too much. You've got to respect that there are branches for a reason. Yeah, and it brings me back to an earlier point that, that Aaron made about how you wonder if he understands there's a House and a Senate, mm. which I thought the same thing, that talking about health care looking for the victory the House had to pass it. But it's not going to get through the Senate. So how is that a victory, right? It, it, it almost shows a fundamental lack of understanding of how our system of government operates, which is not entirely surprising. Going back to Gerald's point, his experience is in the business world, right, where you can in many ways make it so when you're that you're the head of the, you know, a CEO, you're head of a large corporation. And I think he expected that. And, and that's what his supporters wanted. They don't like government. They don't like the, the deep state. Yeah, right, oh, right, you know, right, right. Could, right. Don't forget. So they, don't forget. They want it to be a business. The well, House passing could. something yeah. can be called a victory. Let's remember the Contract for America, that great Republican rhetorical thing that helped nationalize congressional elections. None of that got through the Senate. All of the, you know, eight out of ten got through the House, and they claimed that was their promise. We'd get it through the House, so that's a victory. So there's no results requirement here. But what there's something is- important here. There's something, and, and we're talking about the game of Trump, and it's the first hundred days. That's the topic. I get it. But he's attacking separation of powers here with the court, and he's attacking federalism when he's going after sanctuary cities. And so I think we have a responsibility to talk out. Yes, he might not have known all this coming in, but you're the freaking president now, Mm. right? And so we can hold you accountable to these structures that have allowed this country to, you know, succeed for 200 plus years. And I think it's a mistake if we play on his turf, on this sort of that he wants to have this back and forth. What we need to step back and say is you cannot attack separation of powers and get away with it. You cannot attack federalism and get away with it. This is like intro to political science and their eyes glaze over when you talk about this in class. Well, now (laughs) we have these examples of like this is a real deterioration. And yes, it works with that base, but that base is a minority of this country. Absolutely. Actually, the the important point here is perseverance. For on the part of people like us, we have to persevere. We have to. The thing is that he contradicts himself with these grandiose things. He today he'll say something that makes it appear he doesn't understand checks and balances. Tomorrow he'll say so. I mean, let him make more mistakes before we jump on him. Because when you jump on every little mistake, you reinforce his narrative. Oh, they're just and th- these aren't little nitpicking. mistakes, though. Yeah, this That's is kind of big. Yeah, I think. Well, they're yeah. rhetorical. They're rhetorical yeah. mistakes. Right, uh, Shannon. I, I I think there's also, right, there's been a debate among progressives and those on the left, right? Like, oh, you know, let's not attack Trump because Pence would be worse. But but among political scientists, I think there's a consensus that, you know, for leftists, Pence's values might be worse. I think he values the norms and the rules of our political system in a way that Trump does not. And so for a lot of us who tend to be on the more liberal side, even though we don't agree with Pence, he's less scary because he respects federalism. He was a governor. He respects the courts. He respects the House and the Senate. And this violation of norms is fundamentally scary to people who study this for a living. He can't get away with the kind of chaos approach that Trump can, and that would be that would add a, a lend an air of stability to the situation, which would be useful yeah. for public education and even useful for counter mobilization. 
You know, I've heard a number of pundits, and one in particular characterized these first hundred days with President Trump as really issues around character and chaos, which mm-hmm. I thought was interesting, sort of encapsulated a lot, a lot of chaos going on. Some of that has to do with the learning curve. Some of that, frankly, has to do with the fact that he doesn't have enough people in certain mm-hmm. places still. And there's lots of changes, though I'm told by m- many analysts that some of the chaos is normal for people who come to Washington and, and take over at the beginning. But what's really distressing for me are the, how do I put this? Uh, I, no verability and no verifiability on so many things coming out of the White House. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just flat out falsehoods. And this is very hard to deal with because you never know. Gerald said, well, one day he might feel this way and the next day he might feel that way. That's true. But along the way, he makes up stuff. <laughs> uh, the accusing President uh, Obama of a felony and many, many more things that we could mention, right. which frames right now, for me, the whole discussion about the Russian connections. So you're, you're left to think he's been so odd about Russia and so weird about now uh, Flynn being left out there to dry, which he should be because of the many things that he did. But on the, on the other hand, is there more going on? Because you can't trust what's coming out. I yeah. share that concern. I, the, the, as you ask the question, it's hard to articulate yeah. <laughs> because uh-huh. it's so different. And I think we're beat down and it's only 100 days. Right. And I think intentional or not, that has real ramifications. We're one fourteenth of the way through for the next 13 fourteenths uh, wow. moving forward. <laughs> it becomes where do I focus it when you change every norm so quickly, we're on quicksand. And so my concern is it softens the ground for, you know, the majority of his presidency, which is yet to play out because we don't know where to focus. It's a new falsehood over here. And then the next day it's attack on federalism and that. And I I think we need to be very careful to everybody sort of focus on one thing and make that your thing, if you will, because what he's done in these hundred days is to throw off so much of what has been practiced by Democrats and Republican president executives so quickly that it softens the ground for him to do real damage moving forward. I'm going to hold I'm going to hold everybody else right there because we're going to come back. We'll pick it up. When we return, more on President Donald Trump's tumultuous first few weeks as president. What's next for the administration? What future Trump policy should we cheer or fear? That's coming up. And this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And this week, we're dedicating our whole show to President Donald Trump's first 100 days in office. Here to chat with us about Trump's presidency so far are three of the Mass Politics Profs, a group of political science professors who share their analysis and commentary on their blog on WGBH.org. We're speaking with Shannon Jenkins of the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth, Aaron O'Brien of the University of Massachusetts Boston, and Gerald Duquette of Central Connecticut State University. So let's jump back into the discussion, literally, Gerald, because you wanted to Uh pick up where Aaron left off saying we're on quicksand, the ground is softening, we can't trust anything. I want to put a question in as you answer, which is, if he were telling the truth on these things, but changing all the norms, would that be better? 
Well, I mean, I, I hate to say it, but when you say the truth, do you mean what he thinks is the truth, or do you mean that? Well, no, that which can be verified. Let me put it <laughs> yeah. that way. That's how I'm uh, defining the it. The journalist. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Well, remember, verification isn't, you know, if, you're, if I'm selling you a car, the, I can't sell you the car if you leave the lot. Because when you leave the lot, you might try to verify some of the things I've claimed. Well, or documentation. So, <laughs> yeah. Verification and documentation. Yeah, yeah. Does that well, help you? <laughs> uh, he, that's not the way he rolls. I know. Right? That, he's the pitch man. He's not the guy who comes in and then gives the details. He's the pitch man. And as the pitch man, the details aren't that important. And he assumes that after he's really made you uh, buy the thing because you love it, you'll let the details that weren't quite right go because you've bought the big picture. Hmm. Shannon, you want to add something? So, well, I want to go back to sort of your original question and proposition. And, you know, part of the thing that's fundamentally scary to me is the withdrawal of transparency that makes it really difficult for us to verify these things, right? We're, we're no longer going to be able to access the visitor's log to the White right. House. right. I was listening to Jim and Marjorie the other day, and they talked about with Cap, uh, Congressman Capuano about how we're not going to be publishing information about troop deployments anymore. Right. Right. I mean, wow. part of you know, the media is an, plays an important role in our in our government and our system, right, in verifying these sorts of things. And right now, we're going to have to rely on Trump's version of the truth because we can't have access to these sources of information that are so critical. And we see this, right, you know, in the, the changing of the websites, uh, you know, in so many departments where you mean, we can't have to climate. Yes, okay. Yeah, yes. And, mm. and, and even in the, in the brand, you know, in the, in the executive branch departments, right, right, where we can't talk about climate change and right. research is disappearing. We're having hackathons to back up the information that's available on the websites, right? Like, I mean, this is really to me, very scary stuff, because how do we verify, right? Whether you're a Republican administration, a Democratic administration, right? The public and the press needs to, you know, have access to information to check your powers. It's fundamental to our political system. So they're really restraining our ability to do that. So a couple of things, in case people do not listen in the middle of the week. The show you referred to is Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan's show, Boston Public Radio, in the midday. That's Michael Capuano, who's a congressperson who has is running on his website something called Behind the Curtain, where he is outlining a lot of uh, things that are happening that we are not aware of. Uh, so there is that. A couple of things that came out of that, though, the both with the logs and the troop deployment, a member of Congress has to ask for it. A member of Congress right. can ask for it and get it. But remember now, we have both houses <laughs> predominantly Republican. So somebody that chooses to ask for it already puts themselves out there in a kind of political quandary, really, because you're going up against right. your commander in chief. So you have now politicized right. finding right. out who's at the White House, mm -hmm. who's at Mar-a-Lago, right. yeah. and where these troops are deployed. And every time we say, you know, war on media, I think it's better, or war on these agencies, that war is on checks and balances of the executive. That's what we're talking about here. I agree. I think that James uh, Corden, who is a comedian on uh, CBS, may have it right because he said perhaps we didn't check the fine print. On Sunday, Trump blamed Democrats for not wanting to fund the border wall, which he claimed Mexico will be paying for, quote, in some form and, quote, at a later date. <laughs> but this got me thinking, now that I think about it, can we see those Trump hats again? Right, so look, yeah, make America great again, but look, can we zoom in? <laughs> now, I never noticed the asteroids before. Can we see the back of the hat? Look, 
Yep, in some form at a later date. We should have read the fine print. This one's on us. So the question for some people is, as they are now, quote-unquote, reading the fine print as if they're happy <laughs> with a direction, I do think it 100 days is really a short period of time to assess anything about a new administration. But obviously there are some indications of, upon which people can take a look. And we've seen some polls recently, 96 percent of folks who voted for him, this is President Trump's base, are very happy with the direction it's going in. There are 2%, however, of people who are not. There was just a poll by millennials from the Harvard Millennial Study, and this is the 33rd major poll released since 2000 of a group of millennials. It's based at Harvard, the polling apparatus, but the poll is of young people across the country. And only 32% of them, these are 18 to 29-year-olds, approve of his job performance so far. That means 68% do not approve. I mean, I'm not a big poll person, as people have heard me say, but that's a little intense on both sides. And then when you break it down out of Republican and Democrat, there's a general uneasiness about some of his moves on foreign policy and some other things. And that's been expressed as folks have have been asked what they feel about it. So I don't know that that makes a difference in the White House. This is a guy, as you all have said, who is very responsive to media. But Gerald, the bottom line is his base is still with him. So I don't know that he feels like he has to respond to anybody else. Well, he, he still feels he has to respond to slights. But the issue here is what actually moves people. People are not issue... We're talking about the issues. We're sort of using a rational yardstick to say what has he accomplished on the issues. But that's not how voters work, right? Voters are basically motivated by their social identity and their sort of party leanings, uh, which is to say that if you identify with this guy's brand, if Trump is like you, he seems to be someone who is in your in-group or culturally similar to you, then you're just a fan of his team and he's, his team is your team. And all those details that we are talking about as actual substance are not important to them. In fact, they're quite certain that the people reporting all those darn facts to them are really just out to get their guy. And this is, by the way, true on the right and the left. We cannot pretend that there are not a lot of Sandersistas or uh, Jill <laughs> Stein folks who exhibit the very same alternative universe thinking, because they absolutely do. And what that tells us is voters in America are not being driven by any sort of precise interest. They're being driven by their social identity, for lack of a better word. They're being driven by their sense that it's uh, politics is always an us versus them thing. And these two parties are, are battling all the time. Which one looks more like me? And thinks more like me. That's the level of analysis for the average voter. So when you talk to college students, yeah, culturally, we get it. They're not going to be the kinds of people who are going to say Trump's doing a good job. But then if you go to a hunting you know, lodge or something, you're not going to find that is the attitude of the people at that establishment. In other words, yeah. it's all based on social identity, not on specific issues. That's why alternative facts don't actually offend that many people. All right, so let's uh, I, listen to some Trump voters, Shannon, before you speak. The, CNN has been following a group of Trump voters throughout the campaign, and Allison Camerata sat down with few of them to ask them about what they felt about the president's first 100 days. I'm willing to give him more time. There is a learning curve that is involved with learning how to deal with the government. So I feel encouraged that things will continue to improve. Craig, how do you um, see the future? Well, 
you know, they say give him four years. But uh, unfortunately, he's shown what he's capable of doing in the first 100 days. Make America great again has is, become a myth. I want to let people know those are Trump voters. Now, go ahead, Shannon. So, you know, I think this is to follow up on what Gerald said, right, that people, their social identities drive sort of their choices. And, and a lot of times we've operated under the assumption that information will move people. But, you know, the academic research is pretty clear on this, you know, on cognitive processing, that information that's contrary to your beliefs, instead of causing you to change your mind, causes you to actually become more committed to your original position. And this is, again, to Gerald's point, not just people on the right, it's people on the left. People, generally speaking, they don't change their position when new contradictory information comes to light. So I am entirely unsurprised that Trump voters are still committed to their position because they don't believe any of this information or is not changing their mind. And the fake news narrative helps reinforce that. And so I think the fake news narrative is very purposeful to give people this cognitive tool to latch onto to continue to support what he's doing. And it doesn't appear to be moving them with regard to Russia either, Aaron, before no. you say yeah. uh, it. Mm. What I love about there's a combination of polls that I find helps give us the whole context here. Right. When you ask about Donald Trump, favorable, unfavorable, he has historic lows on unfavorability in the 30s, <laughs> oh, less than 100 days in or I guess now 100 days. Mm-hmm. But so he's doing terrible on that. And many on the left and for the reasons both of my colleagues talked about are like, OK, great. Trump in trouble. But then the second level of polling is the one uh, you talked about. Would most Trump voters vote for him again? You know, 93 percent are saying yes, they would. And that's what's so interesting. That shows that, yes, I might critique my guy a bit, but the vast majority are there. And if Democrats want to win elections, they need to not keep on pointing out the hypocrisies of Donald Trump. That makes the left feel good, right? Like, you know, if Obama had golfed that much, you know, that's true. And that is the Democratic base loves hearing that because it's I happen to believe it's 100 percent accurate. If Obama had gone to Florida every weekend, true. 100%. Have you moved any voter by pointing out this hypocrisies? No. More than anything, you're just making that Trump voter latch on to him even more. And to your question about millennials, I'm like over the millennial argument. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. And, uh-huh. Well, here's what I'm over the, the Democratic reliance on millennials and the country's getting more diverse. Mm. So we're going to win elections. Right. Mm. Well, guess what? At been... some later date. Yes, exactly. Uh-huh. And exactly. For 20 years, we've been saying this. And Donald Trump just won. Yes, he didn't win the popular vote, but he won the Electoral College. And so, yes, the terrain of politics will look different. These young people who are predisposed to be against Donald Trump, OK, or the country's getting more diverse. You still have to run really good elections. Mm-hmm. You still have to have policy. You still have to meet people where they are and inspire them. We can't just you know, sit back and wait. The country is changing, so it'll eventually come to us. You have to go to that changing country. And what Donald Trump did is, despite all those changes, he got white working class. He got people who are angry to turn out for him. That's my guest, Erin O'Brien of the University of Massachusetts, Boston. She's a member of the Mass Politics Profs, and she is here, as I am, along with Shannon Jenkins of the University of Massachusetts, Dartmouth, and Gerald Duquette of Central Connecticut State University. So we've talked 
talk a little bit obliquely about his war against the media, but it's very intense. He's called the media the opposition party. And that, of course, has made things even more tense out in the world <laughs> as we try, to, as journalists really try to put forth the information that nobody wants to hear or, or a few people who support him want to believe, as you've just said very well. So here is our president talking about the press and how he feels about it. The press has become so dishonest that if we don't talk about it, we are doing a tremendous disservice to the American people. The press, honestly, is out of control. Some of the media is fantastic, I have to say. They're honest and fantastic, but much of it is not. The media is trying to attack our administration because they know we are following through on pledges that we made, and they're not happy about it for whatever reason. And, you know, you can talk all you want about Russia, which was all a, you know, fake news fabricated deal to try and make up for the loss of the Democrats. And the press, press plays right into it. So this is both the good times and bad times for journalism, because journalists don't have time to be sitting around complaining <laughs> yeah. about how he feels about us. But the work has become even more intense. Uh-huh. The heyday in terms of popularity mm. amongst mass publics for journalism was after Watergate. Yeah. So uh, just because many mass publics seem to be going along with this doesn't mean that the field won't be respected yet again. But what Donald Trump is, he, he conflates transparency, information gathering, and justified critique with dishonesty. You can't do that to me, right? And so I I have no doubt that he genuinely feels that way. But it's because when the press does its job, Donald Trump doesn't like it. Every president doesn't want the press in their business. But most presidents realize that, okay, this is going to go on. And where real dishonesty goes on, yes, we can call that. But Donald Trump Fundamentally, it comes down to do not critique me, do not question me. And any institution that's doing that, whether it be these circuit courts, whether it be cities, whether it be journalists, he has a real problem with. Gerald? Absolutely. I want to go back to Aaron's point about hypocrisy. Mm -hmm. Hypocrisy is never a substantive argument. But when you are a professional journalist and you are in a 24-7 environment where you have to produce daily, hourly, minutely, (laughs) you don't necessarily have the luxury of only doing the higher quality stories. It's impossible for a journalist to make a living and not try to make a story out of hypocrisy. But making stories out of hypocrisy is literally dumbing down the public's understanding of politics because it's always possible to call any politician a hypocrite. It is an absolutely vacuous accusation. So to the point of how do we get through the morass? How do we focus on what's important? One way we do that is we never bother with the hypocrisy argument. We try not to bother with process and we just focus on actual policy decisions, actual uh, structural uh, pronouncements. But here's the thing. Uh We can do that because we get paid by universities. Journalists have to actually produce a story every 10 seconds. They don't have the luxury of doing that kind of qualitative work. I want to pick up on something all of you have said, and that is this. There's a lot of stuff. The, what Congressman Michael Capuano is putting on his website behind the curtain is a lot of stuff people don't know about. And as I have written and spoken about, much of it has to do with harm that is going to the very people that are the base. 
So as I look at some of these initiatives that have been signed off on some of these executive orders, they're not going against the ones that he rallied against. They're going against the people standing in front of him that he said he wanted to help. The very first executive order that he signed was one that took away a mortgage credit for low-income and middle-class Americans. So when you report that, that has nothing to do with hypocrisy. It has to do with policy, as you said. But it doesn't seem to be those people most impacted by these decisions don't seem to be responding to that. And I'm not expecting people to, you know, rise up, yeah. but I'm just saying just to be aware of it, Shannon. Yeah, but that assumes, again, that people are persuaded by information, right? Okay, um, and I'm not sure right. they are particularly policy details. So the base watches them and they hear this really abstract thing about some mortgage thing might, that might happen to them. Or they hear their president giving voice to their deepest feeling, which is the liberal media's dishonest. And it's the latter that's effective because it ties into, to, to Gerald's point, their social identity and what they truly believe at their core. And, you know, and I see this right on my Facebook feed with my conservative friends who are uh, Trump supporters. You give information from The New York Times or The Washington Post that's, uh, I don't buy anything that comes from that. And I even saw one of my friends say, well, I don't believe anything that comes out of Snopes. You know, Snopes right. is a fact check. Right. That's just, they're just, they're liberal. So even fact checkers like PolitiFact, Snopes, things like that, those are now liberals too. And so people are not latching on to the policy details because they don't really understand, right? We see stories of people saying, well, I don't care if Obamacare goes away because I get my health insurance through the Affordable Care Act. Right. 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 And or I, the other way. Right. Yeah. Or I don't get yeah. anything from the federal government, right. just my Social Security check, right? Right. I <laughs> okay. So, up on that. so Aaron wants to jump in. Go ahead, I, Aaron. I want to pick up on that mm-hmm. one because I think it's so important. It's about policy design. We've had, uh, since the Reagan era, with uh, Suzanne Mettler, a political scientist, calls it the submerged state. You know, just keep the government out of my Social Security mm-hmm. or my me- Medicare. Or that housing credit, Callie, that you talked about that was taken away from his base isn't associated with government, Mm. right? And that's because we have designed our policies. Much of what government does for individuals is not visible. And by doing that, and that didn't used to be the case, like in the greatest generation, those who could get uh, those VA home loans and things like that knew it was from their government. Mm. Now, so you've got this base that is wildly angry. Don't associate the few benefits they get from government with government. So in their minds, uh, and we find this empirically, government's bad. Government doesn't do anything for me. So Donald Trump screwing them over, for lack of a better, is nothing new. The constant is government um, hurts me, but he's speaking to me. He's saying things I've wanted to say. He's calling out this immigration, which is, of course, code words for diversity Mm -hmm. and things like that. So take government out of it. At least Trump's one of us. So let's not forget that Social Security, the the sort of basis of the welfare state had to be sold as a personal insurance thing that you pay into. And in other words, that's personalized because Americans have always hated welfare. So there's always been this anti-government strain and it has always required policy design to not offend the sort of anti-state values of Americans. Well, let's look forward in the few minutes that we have here. <laughs> and and if each of you would pick one thing and look forward and which way you expect it to go in the next hundred days and more. So I'll start with you, Shannon. Well, that's a tough one, you know, because I feel like I've been so wrong for so long (laughs) about these politics and elections. I do think there will be some victories. Ultimately, they'll be in spite of Trump, not because of Trump. I think the Republican Party 
uh, is going to have to sort some things out and figure out how to govern. And, and I think ultimately over the next, let's say, year, they will, and they will start to be able to pass some of the policies like tax cuts, like reform to health insurance. I think some changes are going to come. So I think there will be some victories as we move forward. Okay, Gerald. Well, I would piggyback on Shannon in the sense that the structural situation, the Republicans have total control in a sense. Obviously, there's still something left of a filibuster in the Senate. But the fact that they have majority in both houses of Congress and the presidency tells political scientists that there's no way we're getting through four years without the Republican agenda moving forward. So mm-hmm. which things will move forward? Sounds It seems to me that something that they'll call tax reform is inevitably going to get through because there's always ways to peel off some Democrats when you're cutting people's taxes. Aaron. You know, 100 days is always a, you know, a sexy gauge for the reasons you articulated at the top. But it, James Pipner talks about when you're least adept in the office, you've got the most juice. So he, that's not exactly how he says it in academic <laughs> writing. But mm-hmm. uh, um, I'm most interested in the benchmark of midterm elections because we have... Which is next year for people who don't know that, right? Yeah, yeah correct. Okay. Because it is traditionally the case that the president's party loses a lot of seats in those midterm term elections. And, you know, we saw at that race, at the congressional runoff race, or now it's a runoff in Georgia, that a Democrat way overperformed, but also didn't reach that 50 percent threshold. So I'm not entirely convinced for many of the reasons we've been talking about. You know, two years ago, I thought we were polarized. I'm like, that's nothing. Yeah, <laughs> now, that's so I'm fascinated about midterm elections, thinking that I don't think Donald Trump is going to have the losses that many people are predicting. Well, I will say that I think that some of what's been laid out underneath Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, with regard to criminal justice is going to start to blow up, not in a good way. And I don't know where it takes us. But while we weren't looking or not paying attention, there have been a number of executive orders and movements and bills that have really undermined consent decrees with the police departments and all kinds of other what I thought was progressive movement in trying to figure out how we're going to get along as a community between police and, and uh, neighborhoods. And I don't know what's going to happen there. So I just want to put that on the table. and We shall see. One big victory, some maybe not so much, but he's, he signed 28 pizza <laughs> bills. I just want everybody to know. And he went to a, executive orders. That's right. That's a lame duck move. Right. Right. That's right, when right. executive orders, right? he has total control. And he said he wasn't going to do it, but right. of course he had to do it. But Gerald has told us, stop talking about hypocrisy. And so we will at this moment. <laughs> <laughs> and I will thank all of you for joining me. Thank, thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Aaron O'Brien is chairperson and associate professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Shannon Jenkins is chairperson and associate professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts, Dartmouth. And Gerald Duquette is associate professor of political science at Central Connecticut State University. Together, they are members of the Mass Politics Profs. You can find their blog at blogs.wgbh.org slash masspoliticsprofs. Well, that's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show and links to stories we discussed today on the web at news.wgbh.org slash UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Please write to us at undertheradar at wgbh.org. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Andrea Aswahi is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.